Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I am Shane Cashman, and welcome to Volume 2 of Tales from the Inverted World. Ghosts of the Civil War. Become a member at TimCast.com to get the full after-show conversation exploring this topic and more with special guests. The following story you are about to hear is true. The Skeleton at the Gates to Hell, an introduction. Captain Abraham Simon's last wishes were to be buried on his feet with a musket in his hands. So they dug a hole into the top of a hill at the edge of Washington, Georgia in 1824 and placed him there with a bottle of whiskey too, so they say. Abraham said he was going to shoot the devil, that is, should the devil appear to him. The captain's skeleton stands there to this day, watching over the land like a sentry at the gates to hell. There are those in town who claim to hear Abraham's ghost riding his horse through the woods, securing the boundaries between good and evil and hell and earth. What war Abraham might be waging beyond the mortal realm will remain a secret until the rest of town joins him. But despite his best efforts, ruin has come to town more than once since Abraham's death. A series of destruction so biblical that the town might have figured Abraham was never able to make good on his promise. If Abraham did lose to the devil, it's as if all of hell crawled up through his narrow grave to see darkness across the land. A darkness that the town had known before, but many had hoped wouldn't return. There were wars and bad luck and murders and invasions before Abraham's death, of course but he died in what some now refer to as the last year of the era of good feelings. Then came more war, then came the fires, then came the depression, then came the plagues, and so on and so forth until the people in town might have wondered if they were no longer even in Washington, Georgia. Maybe they had been in the bowels of hell all along. Maybe Abraham's grave wasn't so much a trap for the devil as much it was a shelter from the devil. On October 14th, 2021, I took a 6 a.m. flight to Atlanta. From the airport, it's about a two-hour drive east to Washington. At the time, my goal was simple. I hoped to unearth some rumored Confederate gold that had supposedly gone missing at the end of the Civil War. But by my third night in Washington, I had already seen the town prepare a cemetery to receive ghosts. I met a woman who claims to be possessed by the dead and found myself aiming a Beretta AR-15 at a UFO hovering above the trees. 
there were plenty of outsiders who tried looking for the Confederate gold before, from Union soldiers to network television. However, I'd been in contact with a man by the name of Clinton Brantley, but everyone calls him Clint. He can trace a direct line back to his ancestors who were here in Washington since before America was formed, and his family owns property that has been sealed off to outsiders. Washington is a logging town between Athens and Augusta. 18-wheelers with long flatbeds carry the tall pines out of town, and within a few years' time, new pines have grown out of the land for harvest. The town is also known for being the place where Jefferson Davis dissolved the Confederacy at the end of the Civil War. It's a remote and small town, three hours northwest from Savannah. On my third night there, there was close to a full moon hanging over Rest Haven Cemetery. It looked like somebody had roped the moon and yanked it in close, Clint said. He was wearing a blue polo dress shirt with slacks and a pair of Danner Bull Run boots. It was a cold night. The leaves were mostly gone, so the silhouettes of tree limbs stretched through the dark above the cemetery. The town was holding a kind of seance amongst the old graves. The historical society had volunteers dress as ghosts who were buried in the cemetery. They intended to raise the dead so the dead and the living could communicate. The Washington Wilkes County Historical Foundation, run by Stephanie Machia, calls the night Rest Haven Revisited. Clint volunteered to lead people through the graves. He was eager to take part, but also nervous. I think Clint is trying to help save Washington. I think he feels compelled to rescue it from further destruction. He has visions for the future of town, many of which are shaped by his understanding of the past and all the demons that come with it. He felt compelled to volunteer, as if it was the perfect night to make a pact with the dead and the living right in the heart of Washington, to show them all that he was a committed son of Washington. He is also a father, and he wants to make sure his children have a town they can be proud of, not something they will want to escape like most other teens. And he's not alone. There are others who share his vision, and it seems like they've got a lasso around the town, all of them heaving it up to safety before it plunges back into the devil's grip. As the ghosts circled their graves in Rest Haven, some kids made their dirt bikes scream like chainsaws across the street. They'd seen the gathering in the cemetery, and they seemed hell-bent on trying to make as much noise as possible to drown out the voices of the dead. Clint paid it no mind and brought people from ghost to ghost. There were ghosts in antebellum dresses. There were ghosts of ballplayers and gamblers and sharecroppers. Most of them were people from town wearing period outfits loaned out by Stephanie. For the most part, the other tour guides weren't doing much talking but Clint found a way to weave the story of each ghost through his family tree, connecting the dead to specific places, grounding the otherworldly. Clint's family owns property where you can see the skeleton of the old Georgia highway running through it. They believe there is a good chance some of the Confederate gold might have been hidden or lost in their farmland. The deserted track runs through his father's property and the old Georgia National Highway runs through his grandfather's property. Supposedly, the gold was last seen in Washington. Clint's cousin, David Dennard, an older man, owns a great deal of the land in town. Clint lives practically across the street from one of David's homes with the big white Roman columns. Clint told me David would be the man to talk to about the gold, the land, about the history, and all the ways in which Washington has been warped by time. 
we'd made arrangements to speak on my return to Washington. It was hard to convince people to talk to me, a prying outsider. I'd have to go through a system of interviews with various locals in order to gain the trust of the people who seemed to have the most influence over Washington. As the ghosts of Rest Haven Revisited spoke to the living, supposedly David and his crew showed up with a jug of moonshine and started getting rowdy in the cemetery. Clint couldn't see if it was David or not, but he did see the jug of moonshine. The police took the jug and asked them to respectfully find another place to party. I happened to meet David's wife earlier that morning in Rest Haven. Deborah Susan Lanter Dennard was helping Stephanie prepare for the night. Deborah and I stood beneath a great big magnolia tree. It's either the most wonderful tree in a cemetery or the worst one, she said, pointing to the mess of leaves it had scattered across the graves. I wasn't sure if she meant the leaves upset her or upset the dead or both. In a way, Deborah manages the dead. She and I discussed all the ways stories are forgotten, how history and people are forgotten, how every death is the death of a set of memories. We spent an hour talking about the importance of passing stories from generation to generation like an heirloom. Her Louisiana accent stood out amongst the Georgia accents, as did my New York accent. We spoke of the dead, especially those we had both recently lost. She and I shared a moment of silence, and then she pointed out the train tracks that run along the edge of the cemetery. From time to time, years ago, freight trains would stop at the cemetery to dump the dead right here in Rest Haven. No one knew if they had worked on the train or if they were stowaways or what. There are a bunch of pauper's graves past the Magnolia. Some of the nameless dead that were pushed off the trains are under the stones in the pauper section. I believe I earned Deborah's blessing that morning, even with my Yankee accent, to speak with her husband, David. I was warned that David wouldn't even allow a Yankee at his funeral when the time would come to meet his maker. I'd hoped Deborah would tell David that he could trust me and that we could talk about gold and ghosts and war and his own vision of Washington. Anytime I'd ask anyone in town about the gold, I'd get a strange look. They look at you askew. There's been an exile from Atlanta recently and it's brought many new folks to Washington. The night before Rest Haven revisited, I sat with some of them outside the Fitzpatrick Hotel in the town square. Most of them were from Georgia, but new to Washington. When I mentioned the Confederate gold, some nodded politely, while others scoffed at the idea. One of the ladies scowled at me for a moment, then took a long drag of a cigarette she'd bummed at the bar. The gold has been done before, she said as she waved the smoke away. That's old news. I'll tell you what you need to write about. You need to write about the poodle invasion. The poodle invasion, I asked? Everyone in Washington has a poodle, a standard poodle. I have two, she said. Then she rattled off a list of people who also have poodles. She'd be walking her poodles and then she'd see two more. She'd met others who'd just moved here and they also had poodles. She started counting the number of poodles on both hands. She said she wouldn't be surprised if the poodles were aliens in disguise. That they'd all just let everyone think they were pets, but in reality, they were plotting something down here in Washington. She reiterated that the gold was a moot point and then waited to gauge my response. I'm going to be 100% honest with you, I told her. I swear to you, this is the truth. I also have a standard poodle. 
You do not, she said. I swear to God, we got one for our son just this summer, for his birthday. He's black and white and named Apollo. She nearly fell out of her chair. I've come to understand that a lot of the newcomers to Washington are reluctant to discuss the legend of the gold because it's a direct link to the Confederacy, which they seem to want to erase entirely from the surface of their town, and perhaps even from memory. Meanwhile, many of the people who've been in Washington their entire lives are also not so keen to discuss the gold, especially with outsiders. Some believe all the gold was accounted for, that none was lost or stolen. Others are probably sick of people showing up with cameras and microphones trying to turn their town and their families and their home into a kind of gold rush. Others, frankly, are tight-lipped because they believe if anyone's going to find the gold, it better be them. Whether or not there is Confederate gold buried in the land, there is a competition for it, or at the very least, the idea of it. Locals, outsiders, feds, TV, all want their hands on the gold. Some want to keep it hidden, some want to dismiss it, some want to get rich, and some just want to know the truth, what scraps of it there may be. It's understandable why some people from the area might not be so quick to embrace an outsider. The Confederates who allegedly stowed the gold away as the war came to an end probably felt the same way about the Union Army that marched down into Georgia with Sherman in search of Jefferson Davis and the gold, civilization burning all around them. Keep faith and trust no one. Getting some people to speak candidly about the gold isn't all that different from getting some people to speak candidly about matters of the supernatural. Those who have faith in God can be reluctant to speak of ghosts or extraterrestrials. A brisk walk through Rest Haven is one thing, but to admit to witnessing a bona fide ghost or UFO, that's another thing entirely. Yet nearly everyone down here that I spoke with has had some type of encounter with a thing they can't for the life of them explain. The sound of crying in the forest, a strange light in the sky, a chair that moves on its own, homes occupied by the dead. If you're familiar with Dante's Inferno, Dante's tour guide through hell is Virgil. In a way, Clint has become my Virgil through Washington. Without Clint, I would not have gained access to a good deal of people with particular insights into Washington. I sneak into abandoned cemeteries, find access to underground tunnels, follow in the footsteps of ghosts, stare at UFOs, trip into rituals and walk battlefields whose land was once soaked in blood. And as of the writing of this introduction, I've been threatened twice. I'll have you dead by tomorrow, motherfucker. When I came to Washington, Georgia, I did not expect to receive death threats. I did not expect to find greed, bloodlust, deceit, betrayal, death, and sorrow. Here, there is the Lord, there is the law, and there is the land all of which work in tandem to lift and crush mankind. Don't get me wrong, there are also Eden-like pockets throughout Washington, and I have met some of the most gracious people in my life here. I have been given great food and shelter here, and had life-altering conversations here. I am indebted to the kindness of this town, but also my soul has hardened in the face of the darkness that the town pushes back. It seems like there is a perimeter of churches as a kind of force field to drive out the evil, though the evil 
always finds the weak points in any defense. As I've traveled to and from Georgia, I have sent dispatches to my editor, Chris Carr, whom I trust with my life because my life is my words. I tell him of the death threats and war and faith and violence and how the end times is on everyone's mind. Carr is a cutthroat son of Kentucky and, at times, my therapist who allows me to spill my guts. He shared with me a passage from Revelation as he's interpreted it, and it seems only right to share it now since Revelation and the end times are as much of a character here as anything else. When the sixth seal is broken, the sun turns black and earthquakes throttle the world. The moon turns to blood. Stars fall to the earth like figs from a tree thrashed by the wind. The sky vanishes like a scroll suddenly rolled up. All the mountains and islands are dislocated. All the kings, generals, and important people of the earth, all the rich and the powerful, the slaves together with the free, try to hide in caves and mountains. They pray to the mountains and say, collapse, crush us to death, hide us from the fury of the lamb. Who can stand it? The words of Revelation seem to carry more weight here than anywhere else I'd ever been. There is a sense that the passage home might close behind you and Washington will devour you. It's as though the end times could begin right here in Washington, but Washington is ready, has always been ready. I'd slipped into a place where the road between heaven and hell and earth seems to be eroding. A great destruction has come to town on more than one occasion and might well come again. There is a sense that Washington forever braces itself for another dance with annihilation. Yet the town still stands, even if the town itself is like a tombstone balancing on the edge of past and present, a testament to faith and survival, but also, no doubt, a witness to doom and sin. It's said that Captain Abraham Simons was a bad man, a gambler, and a con man. They say he was a wicked man, someone who would create disaster to exploit disaster. Supposedly, a pastor sat him down and, after a long talk, changed his heart. Simons vowed to be a better man. It's possible the captain's last wishes were a way to prove to everyone in town that even in death, he would not rest, that he would continue on a more righteous path, even where hope decays, even when faith is tested, where good and evil wage war. His fight will be ceaseless. The captain's skeleton is a reminder that in Washington there is no escaping the Lord, the law, or the land. The fight never stops and you never truly die. As Rest Haven Revisited came to a close, the dirt bikes were finally quiet, and a young woman by the name of Katrina Beth emerged from the dark in a large white antebellum dress. She kept one hand on her hip as she summoned the spirit of the dead woman. The living could not distinguish her from flesh or ether. She was portraying the ghost of a local woman who'd murdered her husband. Katrina and Clint had only just met and I had made her acquaintance on my first day in town when she came running out of a building because the ghosts were too loud. If anyone could truly talk to the dead, it was Katrina. 
and it made her performance all the more convincing. Katrina's boyfriend lurked in the shadows at the edge of the cemetery, watching her every move, taking inventory of every man that might become any competition. As Katrina performed her ghost story, glowing in the moonlight, she could see her boyfriend leering at her from the dark. In case they didn't already know, Clint told the living that this part of Georgia was one of the darkest places in the southern United States and everyone looked up at the night sky. The moon and each star seemed so close and bright that you could almost feel the warmth of their light on your face. When the Hunga Tonga volcano erupted in the South Pacific, a great column of smoke rose from out of the water. The eruption spawned lightning. The seawater boiled. It sparked landslides and a tsunami. The plume reached 36 miles into the sky. The wind carried the ash across the land. Ricky LaFountain Jr. was driving home from work to Washington, Georgia, filming himself talking about how the earth fell off to him as if reality itself was sliding out from under his feet. It's hard to explain. I can't put my finger on it. But something's just not right with the world today, he said. Even right now, as I'm driving, in central Georgia, heading home to Washington, the wind is blowing so freaking hard at times I gotta grab the wheel just to keep from blowing off the road. It doesn't feel normal. Something's off. And it's not just here, it's everywhere. Do you have any idea how many volcanoes are erupting on the planet right now? It seems like the ring of fire is just getting ready to go off. Earthquakes, storms, flooding, blizzards, famine, disease, the pandemic. Everything is happening right now. Are we in the end times? I think we are. It feels like we might just be reaching the end of one life or one way of life and maybe beginning a new one. He uploaded the video to his YouTube page where he discusses spirituality, death, and all manner of ghouls and oddities. You can see the tall pines blur past him as he drives home. You can see where the forest has been picked clean by industry and where new trees await to be plucked from the ground and loaded onto the trucks that never stop driving in and out of town. One thing that I am pretty confident in, Ricky said, is that the world, at least as we know it, is going to end in my lifetime. I believe I was sent here to be a witness to the end of the world. Do you believe the world is ending? We will return next week with more Tales from the Inverted World. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Inverted Tales and on Facebook at Tales from the Inverted World. You can purchase volume one of the Tales from the Inverted World book at invertedworldbook.com. To gain access to our members-only podcast, please subscribe at timcast.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.